If we could go ahead and have that door closed there because I'm getting a lot of sound out of there, but uh, that's expected with the pictures going on. And if you haven't gotten uh, the lesson for this evening, uh, we are looking at Ezekiel uh, here tonight. And uh, we've been going through these books. We're in the major prophets right now. We've still got uh, the book of Daniel to go through. And then uh, we have... Put this up here. Uh, we also have all 12 of the minor prophets. So we basically, after this week, have 13 weeks, uh, which will take us uh, almost to the beginning of December, if I've got my time right. Uh, and uh, even with Thanksgiving, it'll probably be 1st of December. So we've been covering this for the whole year. I will say this book of Ezekiel is one of my favorite books. Uh, and you go, why is that? Because there are all sorts of things that are in this book that are just kind of fascinating as you study them out. But I think most people get terrified by reading the first two chapters. Because as you see that first uh, two chapters, you see Ezekiel who is uh, seeing a vision of God, but you have these creatures that are what I would call cherubims, that's what I think they are, um, and uh, these creatures with multiple faces and wings, and then you got this kind of chariot-like vehicle with wheels within wheels with uh, eyes inside the wheels, and you're just kind of like, I don't know what's going on, but then in the midst of this, all of a sudden you have this, this, this basically uh, huge uh, surface area above this that you see a throne there and one enthroned upon that, and uh, that being God who's enthroned above all things. And people get caught up in those first two chapters, go, I don't know how to interpret that. I don't even know what's going on with that. I'm done. You know, let's go to Daniel. He's gotten those nice stories about the lions and and, uh, fiery furnaces, and I understand those things. And so people just kind of just run right past Ezekiel. But uh, Ezekiel is one of those books that is rich uh, in stuff that you find in the New Testament when it comes to the New Covenant and things yet future to us. A lot of stuff that's yet future to us and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through here this evening. Ezekiel is written by Ezekiel uh, and so we have that. Say, so when is it written? It's written in 570 B.C., uh, you say, well, why is that an important time frame for us to figure out? Well, it's written in 570. Ezekiel was taken in 597. The final destruction of Jerusalem is 586. So he's taken in one of the previous captivities before the final captivity, the Babylonian, Babylonian captivity takes place. There's three times where the Babylonian kings come through. He's in the second round uh, when Jehoiachin was taken captive, and the time of the messages start that he writes about, about 593, when Ezekiel was 30 years of age. Now, let's just stop there for a second. 30 years of age. Why is that an important time frame? I'll ask you this question. When did Jesus start his ministry? 30 years of age. You're going to find that Ezekiel is a person that over and over again is called son of man. What, you say, what is significant about the age of 30? The age of 30 is when a priest started serving in the temple. 
They served officially from age 30 to 50. They had 20 years of time that they served as priests, and they were done. They could still work in the temple, but as their priestly work, it's done. So the messages start appearing to Ezekiel about the time he should be starting his priestly ministry. That will play a role in the information here, but that is significant. Uh, We find out his age there right at the beginning. He prophesied 22 years. Contemporaries of Ezekiel were Daniel, who was in Babylon, and there seems to be some connection of Ezekiel with Daniel because he talks about uh, if uh, individuals like Noah and Daniel were in the city of Jerusalem, it would not be enough with their righteousness to spare the city of Jerusalem. So Ezekiel's familiar with Daniel. Uh, obviously being a government official, Daniel was, but there is this crossover, and so he's contemporary of Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Judah. The theme of the book, and we've been kind of doing this uh, with Isaiah, it's the uh, servant of the Lord in Jeremiah, it's the judgment of the Lord, and then in the book of Ezekiel, it's this idea, the glory of the Lord. Because the glory of the Lord is going to play a role at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. You say, what's the glory of the Lord? The glory of the Lord in a visible sense was the display of God's power, usually by something that was bright and shining, whether it was a cloudy pillar uh, amongst the children of Israel or a brightness that filled the temple. Uh, But God displayed his presence visibly by that, but uh, in talking about this, uh, the glory is just simply the display of God's working out, uh, working out, his handiwork as it's sometimes uh, compared to. Uh, And um, this book is about the glory of the Lord being seen, leaving the nation of Israel and coming back. And so this is uh, an important theme throughout the book, and so as you see the word glory in the book of Ezekiel, you just kind of go, oh, this is that, that thing that Ezekiel is always talking about and magnifying as he goes through. The arrangement, and I will just give this to you quickly because uh, we'll go over most of this information in the center, but the arrangement is simply this. You have Ezekiel's commission in verses, or chapters 1 through 3. Uh, he gets his commission and told, here's what you're going to do, and you're going to be going to stubborn people. Uh, and so you have the commission, you have prophecies and illustrations of judgment on Judah, uh, and this goes from chapters 4 to 24, where there's illustrations that he gives, and he is sometimes the brunt, bearing the brunt of those illustrations, he himself. You have prophecies of judgments on the nations, So you have a whole bunch of prophecies against everybody else outside of uh, Israel. And then prophecies of restoration, Uh, chapters 37, 38, 39, the the prophecy of Dembones is uh, in this section, but it's talking about the future restoration of Israel. And then you have... uh, the last section, which is prophecies of reestablishment for Israel in the millennial kingdom, them being reestablished in the land and being there. And you find in that section three new things, a new temple, a new worship, because it's not the same kind of priestly worship they had before, and a new land allotment. The boundaries of the nation of Israel is in, in a manner that you've never seen before. 
uh, when it comes to the end of the book. And so that's, that's just kind of the arrangement. So as you're reading through, this is what's going on, and you can kind of uh, delineate the sections. They're pretty clear uh, as you go through that you've got a different section going on here as you read through the book, but uh, this is the, what is going on. Keywords. Okay, one of them, and uh, I went through as a young, young guy because I saw this and I was just interested to see, and this is before you had programs that would chase it out. Uh, one of the key uh, words is son of man. It's used 93 times for Ezekiel. And you go, well, that's the name Christ took for himself when he was on the face of the earth. He called himself, I am the son of man. He didn't call him the son of God. He called himself the son of man. And uh, you say, well, why is that? Well, because some of the prophecies of Daniel, he talked about the son of man coming and clouds of the great glory. And so there was kind of this hint that the Lord is talking about him being a man. But there's also this element with Ezekiel that he is a son of man. He is a son of Adam. He's made of dust. And uh, it's a reminder of Ezekiel that he goes through his ministry and he's being beat up and he's being... It's just kind of a reminder, yes, you're a son of man. You're, you're dust. I, I know that. I'm well aware of that. And I'm calling you that, just reminding you of that title. But you'll see that 93 times in the book. You also see this uh, name uh, as you go through the book over and over and over again, uh, this name for God, and it is uh, this statement, the Lord God. Uh, I should have marked it down where one of the first occasions of this is at. I did not... I see it here, uh, the first example of Ezekiel chapter 4. I've not eaten that which died. flesh. Well, you see. What this is actually is the two names that are normally translated in the Bible. So the master and when you see communicate and know me by and uh, use this name uh, because it is the name of relationship and that name just simply meant I am I'm self-existent I don't need anybody to help me I'm, I'm one who is uh, self-sustaining but yet I'm still in relation to you as a people so what you see over and 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 over again in the book of Ezekiel throughout the Old Testament used this way, uh, but this is a title and a name that appears over and over for God. You have the word glory, which you said is a very important uh, word in the Old Testament. 
is then spread out the rest of the time uh, throughout the book eight times. Uh, and uh, that because he's coming to rebellious people. These two pages will get you the message of the book fairly quickly. Ezekiel was a priest... Being held in captivity in Babylon, he was away from the temple. However, in chapters 1 through 3, God came to Ezekiel and gives him one of the grandest and greatest visions of God in the whole of the Old Testament. The wheels within wheels, the creatures uh, with unusual faces topped by a throne with one who has a bright appearance often confuses people. And so you have this. What was uh, seen was described as the, and you read through in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 28, as you get through all of this statement of what you're seeing above the firmament was the likeness of a throne, appearance of a sapphire stone upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man above upon it. And then verse 28 says this, the appearance of the bow as it is in the cloud of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice of one that spake. The Lord called Ezekiel, the son of man, and he communicated to him that he was being sent to rebellious and stubborn people. And you have some of the passages that are uh, famous about the watchman, okay, the person who is uh, supposed to warn people that the enemy is coming. And there's even going to be, as you go through some of the passages, where God says, your message is to warn. And if you don't warn, you failed in your job. Your job's not to battle the whole armies of uh, Babylon and that. Your job is to warn the people. They have to respond. The response is not that they go to arms against the Babylonians. The response for them is, Lord, we've done wrong. But Ezekiel's supposed to be delivering that message. He's supposed to be a watchman for the nation of Israel. Now, if you read through the book of Ezekiel, you'll find that Ezekiel was most often times illustrating his prophecies. He had to do some very strange things, and he would have been the talk of the town. He would have been the crazy, crazy guy down in the town square that everybody going, I, what's he doing today? I don't know. Uh, for him, there was different things that he had to do that he laid on his side uh, for over a year facing this model of Jerusalem, and he just lays on his side in the town square and does this. Uh, he cuts up his hair and, and uh, takes it and puts it to the wind. He, on some occasions, goes around uh, half-naked uh, like the prisoners of Jerusalem will be clothed. He cooks his food over human dung, I mean, it's all of this type of stuff that you're just going, these, these are really embarrassing things to do out in public, but God says you're going to do it because you're going to be a visible illustration 
for these people to understand what's going to happen way off in Jerusalem. You're all in Babylon, but what's going to happen in Jerusalem, and I want you to deliver these messages uh, back to Jerusalem so that they know what's going on. So from Ezekiel, we talked about Jeremiah. Here's this man who's always being abused by people while he's in Jerusalem, and he's a personal illustration. Ezekiel is a man of just, you know, no shame. And it's not because he's, you know, a person of just, you know, abundant personality, you know, and he has no shame. No, he's just always basically being embarrassed by these illustrations because people are just going, I can't believe you're doing this. Why are you doing this? This is really crazy. And they don't really even pay attention to the message. Even though the message is so visibly there and it's stated out of the mouth and illustrated for them uh, in a visible human picture. So you get to chapters 8 through 10. You have Ezekiel being taken to Jerusalem in a vision, being moved there, and you have him talked about that he's caught up by the Spirit and and basically by the hair, uh, taken over to Jerusalem and dropped in there, and he's got the opportunity to see what's going on in uh, the city of Jerusalem, and he's able to go and dig into walls and see into houses and see what people are worshiping what they're doing in secret, and, and this, and, and it's not just the regular people, he's actually seeing what the leadership is doing, both in the governing bodies and the priests, where they're worshiping false gods, and he's able to see these things. And in the midst of this, God says, my glory is going to leave the temple. I'm going to leave. And so what uh, he sees there at the temple is the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, and he sees it go from place to place. It gets to the steps of the temple. God says some more things, illustrates some different things, and then it goes to the eastern gate. And then the glory of God marches out and goes up to the hill uh, right there of uh, the Mount of Olives and disappears You go, why is it important that it's leaving the Mount of Olives? Well, important note for later. Because this plays a role in what the rest of the story is at the end. So what this is symbolizing is God left his people because of their gross sin. He leaves the temple and you kind of go, well, you know, that's his place that he has his name. No, he's not there anymore. God can't condone everything else that's going on here. He's not a God of that. And so he leaves, and when he leaves, God's protection's gone, God's glory's gone, and the nation of Israel is about to be, well, mauled by the Babylonians. Ezekiel continues to use illustrations to describe the condition and future judgment of Judah. He compared Judah to a prostitute going after other gods. uh, And in fact, in that case, she's not getting wages from these individuals. She's paying wages to these individuals. Uh, He challenged them with personal responsibility, and that judgment comes for one's own sin. You read chapter 18, and it's this discussion of, you know, if a father sins, does the the son get punished for this? And no, if a person uh, is uh, one who repents, they don't get punished uh, for it. But if they do what's right and then suddenly do what's wrong, 
God's going to judge that. But what if you have a person who's doing wrong and they suddenly repent? Will God judge them? And the answer is no. I mean, it's just lengthy situational things. Does God just randomly punish people or punish them for their parents' sin? And what you get down to is, no, everyone's individually responsible in the sight of God. They're judged for their own sins. But the nation of Israel was going, oh, this is happening to us because, oh, our parents sinned or our great-grandparents sinned. It's not because we're sinners. And Ezekiel's having to illustrate and explain that you get judged for your own sins. However, the greatest illustration that Ezekiel finally gives is in chapter 24. Ezekiel was uh, to mark the day as the one that the siege began in Jerusalem, yet God said he was going to take away the desire, as as the scripture says, the desire of thine eyes. See what happens on that day. Ezekiel's wife dies. And what God says is, don't mourn for her. Now, no idea how long Ezekiel had been married. No idea what this had as far as impact to family. But you would expect one to mourn for the loss of a spouse. But God says, don't do that. You go, why is that? Because God's not mourning the judgment that's coming upon Jerusalem. They're deserving of it, even though he would view Jerusalem and Israel as his bride. And so Ezekiel would have gotten questioned for the fact, why are you not mourning over your wife's death? And he would have to say, well, this is what God is like right now. When it comes to Jerusalem, he's not mourning their destruction because uh, they are a people that is not his people. They're not acting like it. And so Ezekiel, in the greatest moment of tragedy in his own life, is serving as an illustration. So you get to the section that's a number of prophecies against other nations. I'm not going to dwell on that because you can read about what he says about other nations, but we're getting this message that Ezekiel begins to give hope. Not just to Judah, but the whole of the nation of Israel. Remember, the only tribe that was left was Judah, and you had Simeon that was kind of blended into Judah, so it's always called Judah. Um, But the 10 northern tribes had been gone for almost 150 years. They had been pulled and sent all over the Assyrian Empire uh, to dwell there. And so most oftentimes the prophecies at this time were talking about Judah, but Ezekiel now starts talking about Israel. There's a shift in his focus. It's not about that last tribe that was left centered in Jerusalem. He's now talking about all 10 or all 12 of the tribes. And what he's doing there is that God is going to do something for the nation. It's because his great name that God will gather Israel back from the nations. You go, what, what do you mean by his great name? Well, God had promised all sorts of things to the nation of Israel. I'm talking about this on Sunday mornings. He promised them a, a land. He promised them a king. He promised them a people. And he promised them a seed that would bless all the nations of the world. He would promised all of these things. And it's not because Israel is a great bunch of people that he's doing this. It's because of what he has said and who he is that he's going to take care of this. He's going to do this. It's his name. We might say his reputation is at stake here. And so he's going to bring back the people, 
And beyond that, he's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. See, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel have a statement of passages that talk about the new, <coughs> excuse me, the new covenant. And as you go through, they're talking about the fact that you're not going to have any longer laws of stone that you uh, come to and you follow these commands that are written in stone and that you do all of those things uh, and listen to those things. But what you're going to have is that one day you're going to have uh, something that is going to change you. And I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 36 for this. Uh, This is going to be one of our key verse passages. But this new covenant, we would say in the New Testament times, the New Testament, okay, we we could call the old books, uh, the 60, the, excuse me, 39 books of the old covenant, 27 books of the new covenant, But this new covenant, read this in verse 25 where God promises the nation of Israel this. I'm not going to have this old covenant I made with Moses. Here's what I'm going to do. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. Verse 25, chapter 36. And you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Ye shall keep my judgments and do them, and ye shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will also save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the corn, and it will increase, and lay no more famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and increase of the field, and ye shall receive no more reproach of famine. Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and loathe yourselves in the sight from your iniqui- for your iniquities and your abominations. But verse 32, not for your sakes do I do this, saith the Lord God. Be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. And so you have this statement where God says, I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put something in you. My spirit. This is a statement of the new covenant. For us, we enjoy the blessings of the new covenant, though we're not experiencing all the blessings of the new covenant. You go, why is that? Because he's talking about the land here too. He's got to restore something for the nation of Israel. We enjoy the blessings now of the new covenant because we have the spirit in our own heart because we've accepted what God has brought uh, in his son. We have a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. But that's not the complete fulfillment of the New Testament or the New Covenant. Uh, That's going to come when the nation of Israel accepts this and sees God and sees their Savior. Now, that's not going to happen until the end of the tribulation where you're going to have the whole of the nation of Israel that's going to believe on God. They're going to look on him whom they've pierced, and they're going to put their faith in Christ, and suddenly they're going to have a new heart as a nation uh, they'll be saved as in a day. So uh, this uh, statement that he's going to put a new heart and a new spirit in him, this restoration was not merely referring to the turn from the Babylonian captivity, but a future regathering of Israel, even future to us. You say, well, wait, 1948, nation of Israel got back together again, and their nation, and they're, they're ones who are there, and they're uh, solidly there in the Middle East, and they're battling, and they've stayed there for a long time now. Well, that's not what we're talking about. Because the regathering of individuals there, there is not a new heart in them. 
If you were to take a poll, excuse me, if you were to take a poll, you would have individuals there that a majority of the population would be either agnostic or atheists. And so it's not that we're referring to right now. There's something yet future to us, so the nation of Israel has this new heart. Uh, we would describe it as the millennial kingdom. Now, the two illustrations that he uses of this change that's going to take place is in chapter 37 where you have this valley of dry bones and then all of a sudden they connect and we you know, can kind of make up parts of the dim bone song, but that's where this comes from. Where God regathers the bones of the nation, and this is going to take place during the tribulation, uh, even though they're going to be scattered, but God's going to gather them, and then there is this breath that takes place, and these bones are filled with life, spirit. Remember, the word wind and breath are the same word as spirit. They're filled with the spirit, and they become alive. And the question is, can God make these bones live? And that's the question. Could God take the nation of Israel and make them followers of him and make them alive because they have the spirit of God in them? And Ezekiel's like, I don't know. And so God does the illustration. And it's kind of like, yes, I can. There's a second illustration that takes place in chapter 37 where you take these two sticks and on one stick he writes Ephraim, which was the head of the 10 tribes. And he writes Judah and then he binds them together, showing that these nations are going to come back, or these, these tribes are going to come back together again. As far as you're concerned, the 10 tribes were the lost tribes. You didn't know where Assyria took all of them to. They scattered them. But what God's going to do is bring these 10 tribes and the other tribe back together again, and they're obviously going to be there. Now, you're going to see later on in the book of Ezekiel that God actually sets up boundaries for each one of the tribes for them to dwell in in this new land that he's going to set up for them. You're going to have people from every tribe. You read the book of Revelation, you're able to have individuals from each tribe that are going to be witnesses there, and they're going to be that amount from each tribe. You're going to be able to have individuals say, well, how do we know that they're from that tribe? God does. God does. He knows what tribe they're from. But uh, they will once again be ruled, as you read this, by David. And some people go, well, they're going to be ruled by Jesus, the son of David. No, you read some of the passages in Zechariah and in the book of Ezekiel, it does seem that David plays a major role in helping rule in the millennial kingdom. Now, we go through all of that and we get to the illustration of Gog and Magog, Okay, and people have you know, tried to judge who's Gog, who's Magog, and all of this, and you know, I, I'm not getting into that. But there seems to be a gathering of the nations of Gog and Magog before the end of the tribulation where they come and fight against the nation of Israel and uh, to reflect upon what happens at the end of the millennial kingdom as you read in Revelation that Gog and Magog gather again to fight against God. But what happens is that you move to nine chapters of chapter 40 to 48 that describe in great detail what is known as the millennial kingdom. When you read through chapters 40 through 48, all of that is taking place after the seven years of the tribulation when God sets up his kingdom uh, here with his son ruling centered in Jerusalem 
Okay, don't get this confused with what we're talking about on on Sunday nights, the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, this is when Jesus comes back to rule and reign on this earth. And it's for a thousand years that he does this, and you have some of the details given. Uh, He starts with the description of the new temple complex. And you go, well, how do you know this is a different temple? Because we have not had a temple like this ever in the history of the nation of Israel. The buildings, the structures, the walls, all of them are uniquely different than anything that the nation of Israel has had to this point. So you have a new temple, the instructions for the building of this temple... Uh, this temple is going to be uniquely different because it's not going to have an Ark of the Covenant and those type of things. This is the place where Jesus is going to rule from. You're going to have God ruling in the temple because Jesus is God. But this building has got specific building uh, instructions for it. And so here's a nation that's in the midst of Ezekiel's prophesying, is going to have their temple wiped out, smashed to the ground. Uh, Eventually it's going to be rebuilt, and then Herod's going to be rebuilt, and then the Romans come along and stomp on it, and to this day, they don't have a temple. But God's got a temple yet for them. And when you have this, when the temple is ready, Ezekiel is taken to the east gate to see the glory of the Lord return, from the te- return to the temple. And you say, where does it start from? It starts at the Mount of Olives and goes down the Mount of Olives through the eastern gate. This is why the Muslims have attempted to block off the eastern gate in Jerusalem because they realize that the Jews kind of recognize their Messiah is going to come through the eastern gate so they blocked this off. No one can go through that. But coming down through the eastern gate, and it goes into the temple complex. Now, you say, Jesus did this once. Well, he did do this once. He came down the Mount of Olives, came into the temple complex. But when he was rejected by the Jews, when he left, he went out in the Mount of Olives, and you read in Acts chapter 1 uh, that he ascends up into heaven, and there's two angels there that say this, in the manner that you've seen him go, so he shall likewise come again. And you read accounts in Zechariah and other passages that describe the coming of the Lord, and he's going to set his foot down on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to battle the nations, and eventually he's going to march into, off the Mount of Olives, but he's eventually going to come to that temple, and he's going to dwell there. What Ezekiel has here is, yes, the glory of the Lord left, but ultimately the glory of the Lord's going to come back, and it's going to be in a person, Jesus Christ, who's going to be visible and seen by all, and he's going to rule and reign in this temple in Jerusalem. And so this prophecy is far-reaching, uh, even for our time. The voice of the, of the glory communicates that he will uh, dwell among the children of Israel forever. This is what uh, the glory of the Lord is declaring as it comes in. Uh, this is clear, Jesus returning to rule in Jerusalem. You're going to have a worship system in there, and this is the section that is a little bit difficult for people to try and handle. Because you have a sacrificial system and priests that are, are offering sacrifices, and you're going, wait, 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 wait. You can't have a sacrificial system because, remember, Hebrews 11 told us that we had one offering, a sacrifice, that it's all done. And people have a hard time with this section. And I would simply say this. Think about living in a millennial kingdom where there's no war, no death on the scale that we have 
There's no murders taking place. None of these type of things that are occurring. None of those things are happening. And so you're not seeing bloodshed or anything like that. And then you go to visit where the Lord is at and you have these sacrifices being offered and you come in there having never seen these things and going, oh, what is that? Why, why is the blood being, why is, that, why is that sheep dying like that? That's horrifying. Well, it really gives people an illustration of what their sins are really like. That Jesus Christ had to die a death and shed his blood and give his life because of your sins. That's going to be a visible, ongoing illustration for people who really don't understand because Satan is trapped for a thousand years in the bottomless pit and you don't have sin on a level that we have being visibly displayed in society. That temple sacrifice system is not a sacrifice system hoping to gain merit. It's an illustration for all who come to Jerusalem to see Jesus. They, people can talk to him. And people are going to say, well, let's come and talk to the Lord. They're going to be able to do this during the millennial kingdom, but they're going to be faced with the sacrifices and this that's going on outside that temple and realize, ooh, my sin was, made him die like that? My sin must be really gross. My sin must be really bad. And so it's an illustration. Remember that in the millennial kingdom, a child is 100 years of age. You know, so there, there's long life and all of this that goes on with those that are bar- born during this time frame. And so that's a, one thing that is there. So the worship will give them an understanding of how uh, Jesus' suffering and sacrifice goes on. What you're going to have in the last uh, paragraph we have there, even the land undergoes a change. A river goes from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean. Another river goes down to the Dead Sea. That river transformed the region from being barren to full of life. When I went to the Dead Sea, there was no one standing on the edge with their fishing rod and going, you know, not happening. There was a whole bunch of people that were laying on it and floating on it, reading newspapers because uh, the water is so buoyant. But there's no, nothing living in that Dead Sea. It's dead. But one day when the Lord comes and rules and reign, there's going to be this river that flows out of Jerusalem and down that concourse into uh, the Dead Sea and people are going to fish there. And there's going to be life and energy uh, in that area. And it's just a visible illustration of what God is able to do, taking something that's been dead for five, 6,000 years and make it teem with life. And so you have a visible illustration, even the end. So uh, the river transforms it. The tribes are given new borders for their inheritance. Uh, The land is different. Uh, Jerusalem is a mountain raised up in the middle of uh, the land of Israel. It seems like the land of Israel kind of flattens out, but Jerusalem's the high point so people can see it from a distance and come to this. Uh, And so there's a geography change, uh, and the land that was taken away from Israel in the beginning of Ezekiel's prophecy is finally restored when Jesus returns to rule and reign, and the glory of the Lord when you get to the end is seen by all in the world which makes the end of the Millennial Kingdom an ever sad tragedy when you have a bunch of people who were born during that time and have been able to talk with Jesus and see what it's like to live in his, well, grace and mercy and compassion and see it visibly displayed for a thousand years are going to come and reject him. 
and uh, sad thing at the end of it, uh, but uh, at least for this thousand years, you're going to have him ruling and reigning, and people are going to be able to see his glory. No one's going to be able to avoid it. They're going to see it. And so Ezekiel, kind of a broad book, covers a lot of things, but uh, is a great book uh, in understanding what goes on. So key verses, we'll give you this real quick. It's those verses, uh, the commissioning that uh, Ezekiel has in verses uh, 1 through 7 of chapter 2, and then that passage that's about the new spirit and the new heart, uh, the new covenant that God's going to give to the nation of Israel. Okay. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that one day we look at a world that is filled with all sorts of terror right now and and violence. That one day your son will come and rule and reign in Jerusalem. That his glory will be seen by all. All the nations will not be able to avoid thinking and considering him. And so we look forward to that day. But uh, as we go through now, may we be individuals that display the new heart that you give to individuals in the spirit, uh, may that be displayed in our life. So we love you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness to us, and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.